0: Welcome to The Anchor, the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel San Pedro. Invite you to join us as we journey through God's Word together, learning how to be anchored in Jesus and reflecting His grace. Here is Pastor Jerry Cesario with today's message. Okay, turn your Bibles to John chapter nineteen. We're going to try to cover nineteen and twenty tonight. I told you last week that uh, when it comes to the Gospels, I don't like to add a whole lot of my own commentary because the gospel authors did a spectacular, spirit-filled job of giving us what we need. So it's a lot of verses we're going to read through. Yes, I will give some commentary and some teaching, but um, I want you to just enjoy the presence of the Lord because I just been really blessed just reading through this again and realizing what Jesus did for us. This will be uh, not for the kiddies tonight because we'll look at the crucifixion a little bit and some of the things in the crucifixion that we don't talk about very often, some of the raw elements involved in crucifixion. and But you know what? We'll also see the glorious resurrection of our Lord. God is good. Father, we just thank you for... Your word, we thank you that you have given us the details. We thank you that you have shown us the great cost in which you paid for us to be saved from our sin and forgiven from our sin. And we ask that you would help us uh, just learn tonight, but just reflect on the story, the greatest story ever told. And as we read it again, let us not be complacent Uh, keep our hearts and minds fresh with the knowledge of what you did for us. Let us not slide into a place of, I've read this before. Lord, let let the cross and the resurrection always be what drives us and anchors us and causes an expectation to see you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. So we have Jesus Now, before Pilate, he has been scourged. He's been, or actually, he hasn't been scourged yet. He's been with Pilate. Pilate's asked him, and we looked at that on Sunday, that, you know, Jesus said, you know, for this cause, I was born into the world to be a witness to the truth. And then that's where Pilate kind of throws up his hands and like, oh, what is truth? I mean, okay, now we're getting philosophical. They brought you to me to kill you, to have you executed. Do you not understand? I'm the guy who can do it. And Jesus just is like, you know, here I am. Do what you have to do. So Pilate's trying to get out of this. Again, some of the details we don't get here. Matthew 26 tells us that Pilate's wife, uh, during one of the meetings with Jesus, Pilate's wife uh, sent a messenger to, to get him out of this meeting. And he goes and his wife says, I had a dream about this man. Much trouble in this dream. Don't wash your hands of this. Don't be involved in this. So Pilate's now worried about that. He's considering that. Remember, also, Pilate, is he's been in trouble with Rome now two times. And he doesn't want a third major incident. And the, the crowd is getting tumultuous, to use a King Jimmy word. It doesn't look like things are going to be ending well. And Pilate is desperately trying to see what he can do. So now, if you go to verse 39 in chapter 18, because it's really just one continuous story here. He says, listen, I find no fault in him. You have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Then they all cried again, saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas was a malefactor. He was someone that was caught. We don't know a whole lot about him. In the other Gospels, we, we see he was a zealot. He was someone who was there, most likely he was on the docket that day for crucifixion. Pilate's like, I'm willing to release somebody, even this guy. We're not sure, there's a lot of commentators that say he was a murderer. We're not sure if he was a murderer. We know he was a zealot and a malfactor, like, you know, had caused stuff against Rome. But Pilate's willing to sacrifice Jesus or him, or whatever you want to do, He's hoping that they'll take Barabbas still because, you know, he is who he is, but they cry out, no, we want Barabbas. No, it's interesting because they're rejecting Jesus. They've rejected him. The the son of God. Barabbas' name means the son of the father. They're choosing the son of an earthly father over the son of God, the father in heaven. So, Pilate then, verse 1, chapter 19, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. So Pilate says, Okay, let's try this then. Let's scourge him. Because he really, it sounds like he does not want to let Barabbas go. So he has him scourged. Now we read this, and it's very simple. But you need to understand what scourging was. In the Roman Empire, scourging was reserved for criminals. Zealots and and, and, uh, insurrectionists. Just really evil, wicked criminals. And remember, the Jews have already laid that claim. They called Jesus an evildoer. The word they used in the Greek is a word meaning someone who is constantly engaged in evil. Scourging, they would take a prisoner and they would tie them down to a pole. Most of the time it was a pole or they would stretch them out, but mostly on a pole, tie them with their hands bound around it so that they couldn't get out of it. And then they would release upon them pure hell. It was a cat of nine tails, mostly. Sometimes it was done with rods, but still the rods would have bits of glass and bone uh, embedded in them. But mostly it was the cat of nine tails. It, It was the Roman scourge, a whip. And the executioner that was good at crucifixion, well, the ones who did the scourging, if not the same people, were very good at it. The first strike upon the prisoner's back would send them immediately into full shock. The tendrils, I guess you'd say, full of bits of bone and glass and metal would wrap and hit that back and begin immediately to tear the flesh. It was very common for scourging victims to not survive even being scourged. You know, that was one way to save an execution was by just scourging somebody and not holding back even the jews had you know 39 save one the romans did it 40 50 however they felt however cruel the scourging guy felt that day and however much fervor got up with the people mocking and you're going to see they were mocking jesus as well by the time most scourging victims were completed and if they did survive they would be ripped wide open those tendrils would go right around vital organs would be hanging out it was that brutal once they finished scourging Jesus, then they twisted a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. You know, how apropos knowing that you know, what was the main sign of the curse. Before Adam and Eve fell, the world, the earth, yielded up its fruit. All he had to do was tend the garden and go forth every day, and they could eat everything they wanted. Everything was perfect, paradise was perfect. After that, thorns and thistles grew up. Adam didn't know what a thorn or a thistle was. He just knew that when he went to go grab fruit, he cut himself and bled and realized this is going to be a lot of hard work. I got to clear these thorns out. Thorns universally became in biblical symbology the sign of the curse. And here, the crown of thorns is placed upon the head of Jesus and then they put on him a purple robe. They find a purple robe, probably one of the Roman soldiers' robes or somebody, somebody there had a purple robe and they put it on like, oh, he's a king. Okay, you know, hail the king. Some of these same guys may have been there a week before when Jesus rode in on the donkey. They're probably some of the same guys who chuckled at the fact that, oh, look at the king of Israel riding a donkey. You know, now they put this crown of thorns on him, a purple robe. You know, it's interesting because purple... In the Old Testament, now we were in Exodus and Leviticus, right? What was the color of the curtains to the Holy of Holies and to the temple? Purple, royal, royal purple. It was a symbol of the holiness of God and the separation between man and God. And here Jesus now stands with the crown of thorns symbolizing the curse of man being placed upon his head. And this purple robe being placed upon him as he's about to stand in the gap, the separation. That'll be important in a few moments too because it might be the same tunic. We're not sure it might be the same tunic that he had already. And then they struck him with their hands. Again, the same word used of the one temple officer just blows to his face. Somewhere in here, and we don't get it in John's gospel, somewhere in here, Isaiah 53 is fulfilled. His beard is plucked out of his face. You know, that was a sign of great disrespect to somebody and just putting somebody in great shame by tearing out someone's beard. Father brings him out and says, listen, okay, here, I scourged him. We mocked him and beat him. We treated him, you know, as badly as we can. Can we let him go now? I don't find any fault in him. And then Jesus came out, verse 5, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. I remember a message years ago, just that phrase. Behold the man. What what kind of a man did Jesus look like at that point? The Bible tells us, you know, in, in Isaiah 53, that he was unrecognizable as a man when they were done with him. By the way, if you go back and read Isaiah 52 through 54, it's all one prophecy, and it's God speaking in the first and third persons. Okay, so we know it's... And in the past tense as, you know, he's recounting what they did to him, but it's a prophecy of what we're reading in the crucifixion. But it's just thinking about that. He was unrecognizable as a man. And I know I've mentioned this before as a paramedic I've seen people I thought about this the other day there's one man I had when I was a paramedic who was just a, a drunk party and he got jumped by some guys and one guy just beat him to a you know the proverbial bloody pulp and I am not exaggerating at all the man's face was this big you know I don't know if he lived through it but he certainly was on his last thread with us And I'd never seen that before. So whenever I read about Jesus being unrecognizable as a man and beaten so badly, I think of that man that I saw and I wonder, how could Jesus still stand? Behold the man, son of man, standing there, in the crown, in the robe, ready to die for the sins of the whole world as the representation of the world and the religion are standing there mocking, shouting with bloodlust, crying out for him to be dead. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. You know, it's interesting. It's the chief priests that do this and the temple officers. We don't read that the common people are crying out. These men are filled with the devil and they are stirring this to get Pilate to do this. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Pilate's like, fine, you take him. I'm not going to send him. I'll, I'll let my guys do the work, or you can just go and do it yourself. And they're like, no, we have a law. And according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. First of all, Jesus did not make himself Son of God. He was the Son of God. They always are accusing him of that, You're making yourself out to be. It's like, no, He was, and He proved it by miracles. He proved it by His conduct, by His life, by His words, by His teaching. And He openly said that He was the Son of God. Son of God and Son of Man, Son of David. Three titles Jesus holds. As the Son of God, He is God incarnate. As the Son of Man, He is the perfect man, the the Last Adam, the one who would come and undo the curse, and as a son of David, he's the rightful heir of the throne of Israel. He is the king of the Jews. But they say, we can't do it. But according to our law, he needs to be killed. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was more afraid. He went again into the praetorium, that judgment hall there, and he said, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer It's interesting because Pilate, there's something in that phrase that kind of freaks him out. We don't know what it is, really. It it stops him. He considers for a moment Wait a minute, what if? Now, the Romans were fairly religious. I mean, they had a pantheon of gods and things like that, but even Paul would go into Athens, right? Or, you know, Mars Hill and and talk about how all men know God, right? And and there's the, the unknown God that they worship. And Pilate most likely had been to Mars Hill. I mean, he's a, a learned uh, man in the Roman Empire. But that stops him in his tracks. I'm thinking about that, I, I just was thinking... How many people? You know, we already looked at Pilate as a representation of mankind who, you know, it's like, oh, I don't want to get into absolute truth. Why? Because absolute truth then shows me that I need that I have absolute sin and that I need a savior, and there's no other way to be saved. But now Pilate's like, who are you? Think about how many men and women have encountered Jesus, heard the gospel, even have a moment. And this is something that grieves my heart all the time, and I'll share it with you. When we have done altar calls in the past, and people come and they line these aisles receiving Jesus, but they're not with us. They're no longer walking with us. They're not, you know, and I don't know all of their stories, but most of them are still, I still see some of those people out on the streets hanging out and stuff. And I think they've had that pilot moment. They were... Worried, They were concerned about their eternity. There was something that caused them to stop and think, who are you, Jesus? Maybe I need to get right with you. But then they brushed it off. Or they even came down for an altar call. But then they didn't stick it out because they, the cares of the world overtook them. That's why we're praying for the prodigals. We're praying for those who have drifted away because they need to be reminded of who Jesus is because they do know him. They've encountered him. They've heard the gospel. They've encountered the power of the Holy Spirit. And I believe this is what's going on with Pilate. He kind of freaks out a little bit. And Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Because now Jesus is silent. He's not going to answer this. Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Now Jesus' answer Because Pilate's absolutely right from a human perspective, from a government perspective. He's absolutely right. He has the power to override the Jews. Now, there's a lot of politics going on here, and you'll see this. But he tells Jesus, do you not know who I am? And Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You know, God's word is clear. It is God who sets up kings. It's God who takes kings down. It is God who sets the course of a nation. It is God who takes a nation down. Might I just say again why we need to pray. Pilate is now being encountered by the very words of God, by the very uh, principles that God has established when he established human government to begin with. The power that Pilate has in his mind was given to him by Caesar who claimed to be a god. You know, the Caesars were worshipped as God, pinch the incense, Caesar is Lord. Pilate's life is in the shadow of Caesar but Jesus is in the shadow of his father who sits on the throne of heaven, who establishes all kingdoms, kings, all leaders, all nations, all authority. Pilate is told, you have no power except for that which has been given to you. He does let him off the hook a little bit, though. He says, therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Who's he speaking of there? It's Caiaphas, the high priest, the one who is out there driving this whole thing. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. There it is. They have bloodlust. They want him dead. And they sense now. When Pilate comes out, his, his countenance is changed, and they, they sense it, and they immediately say, No. You cannot let him go. He has claimed to be a king. He's speaking out against the king of the earth, Caesar. Listen, who did these guys hate besides Jesus now? They hated the Romans. They wanted the Romans out of there. Even the disciples are like, Lord, will you now restore your kingdom? You know, they hail him. Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Even the people didn't even have the understanding when they cried out a week before this, save now. They were saying, save us from the Roman occupation and set up the throne of David. They hate Caesar. They hate Rome. And now they use that Caesar to their full advantage to get Pilate to do what they want him to do. They make the claim that Jesus has made himself a king and he's in turn speaking against Caesar. And somewhere implied in there, I bet, is, and you've seen his power. By the way, when they were scourging Jesus, think about that. I was going to share this, so I'm going to share it now. He is the king. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. When that first stripe hit his back, look at the poise and self-control that Jesus had. Because any one of us, if we had the power in us to break those bonds and wipe everybody out in that judgment hall or that scourging area, we would do it for sure. But Jesus sat there and took however many lashes they gave him without saying a word. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement. But in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. Pilate brings Jesus out and he sits him down in this place called Gabbatha. It's the pavement or the the rocky line. Rocky outcropping, so there's a little, maybe like a stage or a rocky thing. But he has the judgment seat there. That's where he he sits in that seat now. He is, is ready to pass judgment. That seat, interestingly enough, it's the Bema seat. He is about to pass judgment on the one who you and I will stand before, the Bema seat one day, and our sins are forgiven But he is about to condemn an innocent man. John carefully inserts for us here with detail, it was the preparation day of the Passover. Passover is two days. The celebration would go on for two days. They would eat the meal usually the first day, and then there's a secondary meal to follow. But the main Passover meal would be on the night before, right? The next day, they would be finishing up all the lambs, but it's the preparation day for the main slaughtering and for the Passover lamb, the one that the high priest is going to officially say, this is the one that's been vetted out, this is the one that's got no blemishes and we're going to sacrifice this lamb. They would announce that roughly around the six hour, around 12 o'clock noon. And then they would do the process at that point of slaughtering that lamb. By 3 p.m. that day, and this is important, by 3 p.m. that day, the lamb would have been slaughtered, sacrificed on the brazen altar, and then the priest would go home, finish Passover celebration. As Pilate is passing judgment officially, the next verse tells us the Jews are crying out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. The fervor gets at fever pitch here. And at that very same time, John tells us, that is when the Passover lamb. The, I'm not sure where Caiaphas is because he's supposed to be the one doing this. So maybe he stepped out for a moment or he was on his way. But at this moment that Jesus is now being judged, the Passover lamb for Israel for that year has now been presented to the people at the temple. Little do they know that Jesus, the lamb to be slain for the sins of the world, is now also being presented for slaughter Pilate said to them shall I crucify your king the chief priest answered we have no king but Caesar then he delivered him to them to be crucified then they took Jesus and led him away so that's it they prevailed Pilate failed he would go into obscurity living a life of depression. He eventually would be removed for some other things. He would go, be reassigned. He would go into a deep depression, and later, I think some short years, a few years after this, he would commit suicide. Again, the life of someone who rejects Christ is open for the devil to do whatever he wants to do. And he, Jesus, bearing his cross, went out to the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Golgotha in the he- it's Golgotha in the Hebrew, but in the Latin, it's, anybody know? Calvary. A little Calvary Chapel. That's why we're founded at the cross. That's why the cross forms the foundation of everything we preach and teach here. Again, John doesn't give us the full details as the other Gospels, but we know as Jesus is placed there on the cross, he's on either side of him as someone else condemned to die. We know the two thieves on the cross as we all know them, but they're malfactors or criminals of some kind, probably thieves as well, but maybe insurrectionists, we don't know. One of them mocks and rails on Jesus mercilessly. The other one comes to his senses after a few of the statements of Jesus, seeing his poise and dignity, and he gives his faith to Christ and says, please don't forsake me, don't, don't let me go. In other words, I believe I believe who you are. He even tells the other guy, we shut up, go to your death with your mouth closed. We deserve what we're getting here. And Jesus said, rightly, rightly so. But today you will be with me in paradise. That's sad for the other guy, isn't it? Because he didn't tell him anything. All humanity stands in that same place today. There is only Jesus, the bridge between man and God, and man will line up on Jesus on either side of the cross. That's why our whole theme Saturday night is darkness and light, the cross. Jesus as the way to see God. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. This is Pilate's last way of just digging it to these guys for what they did to him. But in a sense, God has used him now for prophecy. He used Caiaphas to stand up and say, it's expedient for one man to die. For the sins of the nation, for the whole world, you know, it's expedient for one man to die. That was a prophecy, and now Pilate is used. Is that didn't Jesus already tell him, "You're you're right where you are because God has put you where you are"? Truly, God does change the course of a nation. God can move on the heart of a king, and he he moved on Pilate, to write Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They don't like it. They hate it. It's written in three languages, the three most common languages, or the three languages that were prevailing in the Middle East. Hebrew, the language of the Jews. The Greek, which is the language of the common people. Latin, which was the language of the educated, the Roman citizens. Isn't it interesting how three languages, so everybody there could see Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And I love one commentator pointed this out, and I I love this. Hebrew is the language of religion, and Jesus rules over religion. He's the king over all religion because it's only through him that man can be saved. Greek is the language of the commoner. Jesus died for all people. You don't have to be educated or inducted into Gnosticism or anything weird. He died for everyone, and Jesus died for the educated, the rich, the rich. Powerful. Paul would go on to write in his letters, not many noble are saved, but those who are. I mean, God saves everybody. Whoever will come, whoever will confess, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord. And here everyone can read who Jesus is. Pilate's not gonna change it, not for them. Pilate's done. He's back with his wife, away from the crowds, probably telling her what's going on. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, by the way, crucifixion, you need to realize how brutal crucifixion was too. And you guys have heard this over the years, so I'll be brief on it, but still, it's impactful. Prisoner would be taken, and that's what's happening right now. They're stripped naked. Crucifixion was horrible and shameful. It was meant to be that way. Cicero, one of the Roman... Historians and philosophers, he led a campaign during the height of the Roman Empire saying we need to ban the speaking of the crucifixion at any, in any way. People should, good Roman citizens shouldn't even mention crucifixion. It's so shameful and horrid. When they crucified women, which was very, very rare, they would turn them around so that no one could see their face. The crucified victim was stripped completely naked. And placed on a, a beam, a cross, a tree, or, you know, probably with the Romans here, it was probably stakes because they, they did it so often. Uh, the Romans could, would crucify thousands in a day sometimes. And crucified victims would be out lining city streets for up to a week. And sometimes it would take that long for some people to die. Families would be there weeping and crying, watching them die. Uh, you know, you, you could survive, very few did. The, the wood wasn't soft sanded wood like this. It was a rough cross, a rough piece of wood that was used probably for building and timber and it probably full of splinters. Jesus' back is raw and ripped open already and it's, he's on a splintered piece of wood. They would take your feet and lay you down and, and bend you at the knees and nail both of your lay, feet together on, on the arch of your of your top of your foot with a big Railroad spike before they had railroads, but like a big wooden or metal spike, nail those down with a little piece of bar underneath your feet, and then nail your hands. And they wouldn't do the hands. That's that's Catholicism where it's all pretty and neat right here. They would do it right in here. Okay, you ever hit your funny bone, and it hurts all the way up here with an intense pain because you have a nerve, the ulnar nerve, and they perfected getting that right in there to nail you down right in the wrist so that you're between the metacarpals so that you cannot, it won't come loose. If you hang a full-sized person on cross with a nail right here, it's just going to rip right out. They put it right in here through the ulnar nerve so the person that was being crucified would have intense burning pain all the way up their arm for the, until they finally died. They would, again, strip you naked, put you on that tree. You guys, this was a horrible, shameful death. You're naked. Who want? You have dreams and nightmares about being naked, right? I mean, we do. It's part of our psyche. You don't want to be shamed and found out without clothes. I got thrown out of the gym when I was in high school, like, with a washcloth. It was very embarrassing. Shameful. I was scared. And my friends snuck around because the jocks did it. My friends did sneak around and get me in another door. But that was embarrassing. But he's hanging on that cross. You guys, behold the man. Our human bodies do horrible things during death. Uh, Things let go. The base of the cross is... I mean, people, they probably just took somebody off to put you on. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. The Jews are not allowed to touch anything dead. Jesus is hanging on a, a tree that's probably used for hundreds, if not thousands of people to be killed, executed. He's, like, he's up there in people's waste and excrement. And he himself, we, see, we don't like to think of these things. We like to think of Jesus. Oh, so We don't like to think about these things. This is horrible that he went through. For us. And there he is on the cross. They they took his clothes. We know he took his clothes off, right? They've got his garments. They divided his garments out between them and each soldier took apart to four pieces. So we know there's four soldiers tending to these men on the cross. But his tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it whose it shall be that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. 650 years before this, the psalmist writes in Psalm 22 that the Messiah would be crucified, pierced, and that they would cast lots. They would divide his garments and cast lots. The soldiers did these things. John just says, therefore the soldiers did these things. God was moving this moment in history. They did what was on their wicked hearts to do, on their mocking hearts to do. Like that's just what they do. This guy's got some nice stuff. You know, take it. Hey, wait a minute. Don't don't tear that thing. Let's let's roll some dice for that one. That's that's a nice roll. You know, it tells us something. It tells us that Jesus had something kind of nice. Probably priestly. Probably, you know, and they they could could be referring to his 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 cloak and his prayer cloth, something that was kind of nice. They liked it. They didn't want to tear it up. But isn't it powerful that the Holy Spirit inspired David to write centuries before that? That's what would happen when the Messiah was crucified. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother his mother's sister. That's uh, from the other Gospels. We find that's Salome, Mary's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas. Mary and Clopas were the ones on the road to Emmaus later that were sullen and sad. So they weren't just like, hey, did you hear Jesus died? They were there, or at least she was. And Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene is the one who de- Jesus cast out seven demons from. So it's interesting, these are the only people there besides John. We find out, because remember, the rest of the disciples have scattered. And John's there because he will tell us here uh, in, a, in a few that he testifies to all these things because he was, he was there. When Jesus therefore saw his mother, and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, which is not derogatory, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. John would take her that night and console his mother, Jesus' mother. Jesus took care of his mom. We know from a passage like this that, that Joseph was, was, had passed on. He did, she, did, she wasn't going home to her husband. John would take over and take care. John was a young man. John John may have been a you know seventeen, eighteen, maybe maybe early twenties, but John was a young man at this time. He will take over his mother, and just looking at this passage right here, just contemplating this, Jesus looks down thirty three years of his life. You know again, we have to get that. Sunday school imagery out of our heads. This is Jesus dying on the cross, brutally beaten. I mean, I I bet his speech was was impeded with his face being so destroyed. Looking at his mom, his mom who made him his favorite dish for his birthday. His mom, who probably wiped his lip or his knee. You know, she was this was real. He was a man. Looks at his mom. But think about Mary, looking at her son. We know that Mary was a woman of God. We know that she pondered all these things in her heart from the day she was given the prophecy that she would, be, she would have a son and he, she would name him Jesus for he would, uh, you know, what is Jesus? Joshua, because he would save his people from their sins because the name Joshua means Yahweh is salvation. She knew these things. She pondered these things in her heart. She saw him grow up as a young man, as a boy. She was probably pleased that he always did his chores and never had any problems with him, didn't ever have to say who did this. If Jesus did it, he did it, but it probably didn't do anything wrong anyway. I mean, she tended to his wounds. She tended to his needs. I mean, she's his mom. As he's growing up, not fully understanding everything about Jesus and seeing him grow up, seeing him become a man. You know, he's the Messiah. Is he going to get married? Is he, you know, I mean, am I going to have grandbabies? You know, through... through She didn't maybe understand the whole thing. She just knows that's her son. And now there he is on the cross in this state, dying. Let's not forget her. Blessed among all women, right? We we believe that. We we'll, pray to her or anything like that you know she was thankful to enter into heaven and see her son and her lord at the same time and now john's going to take care of her after this jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished that scripture might be fulfilled he said either psalm 69 and psalm 22 Uh, my my strength is dried up, my mouth is dry as a potsherd. I think it's Psalm 69 that mentions the, the thirsting. A vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So a long reed, they put a sponge. Again, something that impacted me years ago, these things at the base of the cross were used to clean people up in their death and why they were sitting there. A sponge was used in the ancient times a lot of times for what we would call toilet paper. And here's a sponge that somebody grabs hastily and puts it in some vinegar and sticks it to his face. The fullest shame. He's already been beaten, mocked, beard torn out, savagely scourged, hanging on the cross, spit upon, and now they stick Sponge in his mouth with sour wine, originally they had tried to offer him some, some vinegar with gall, but that's a medicinal to try to dole the pain Jesus refused that the other gospels tell us, but here he does take it, probably because his mouth was so dry at this point he might not have been able to utter the next three words or the really the next word in Greek, so he receives it. It's, And he said this, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Please note that. Please note that. Jesus bowed his head. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Usually when somebody dies, they have to die first before they lower their head because they lose control and they're dead. Jesus bowed his head. He, of his own will, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. The other gospels tell us right before that, he did say, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. It is finished. Let's focus on those words for a couple of minutes. Many of you've heard this if you've been in Calvary chapel if you've been in any church it was popular many years ago talk about these things but you guys never become complacent with these words in english it's a, it is finished in the greek it's die. it means paid in full paid the debt is paid it literally means it is the debt is finished notice that John says, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus knew exactly who he was, what he was doing, and he knew when the, that the time had come to fulfill one last prophecy, and then all things. What things are finished? This is important for us to always remember and believe. What things are finished? All things. Daniel chapter 9, Jesus came to make an end of sin to fulfill all things, all prophecy, everything to be wrapped up. But the main thing for you and I is the debt has been paid. There is no more payment for sin available. Jesus prayed and cried out to the Father in a moment of agony before the cross the night before, wept before the Father, loud groanings before his Father, sweat, drops of sweat and blood, and prayed and cried out, if there be any other way, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, your will and not mine. He knew the plan. He was not expecting the father to say, well, son, you know, it's, it's, it's up to you. He knew he had to do it. He had to complete the plan that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. He had to finish... And make an end to sin, to make reconciliation. I'm, I'm, this is all Daniel chapter nine, which really all things being fulfilled. That's that's what's on Jesus's lips and mind right now. To make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to establish the holy one, to to make it so that Jesus can return and sit on the throne of David forever. To to reconcile us back to God. To to pay the price, the full price. For our sin. And when he made those words, Christian, listen, when Jesus made those words, you were saved. It was done. It was done right there. Do not ever let anyone else come and tell you that there is something you must do to get saved or maintain your salvation. Jesus said, It is finished. If something is finished, you cannot keep working on it. When Michelangelo finished a painting, it was finished and commissioned and hung in the church or the basilica or somewhere where he finished his work. When a doctor, you know, finishes brain surgery and and removes everything and they're absolutely sure and they say, we're finished, close them up. We're done here. Well, you get the point. If something is finished, you don't keep doing things to it. Your salvation was finished when Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit, when he declared on your behalf that he finished the work. He did everything that he came to do. Do not let anyone put upon you any burden to do something for your salvation In fact, that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, isn't it? Those who go back to the sacrifices, go back to the temple, what do they do? They crucify the Lord all over again. Jesus is never going on the cross again. You cannot put him on the cross. So do not try to add anything to your salvation. You cannot. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, and we know that there was this particular Passover, there was two Sabbaths. There was the high Sabbath on the Wednesday evening, maybe the Thursday evening, but, or Wednesday evening, and then there was the regular Sabbath that Saturday. So the they, Jews go to Pilate, they ask for their legs to be broken, that they might be taken away. And the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. I was reading this and I realized, you know, just... How disgusting are these guys? They're watching this scene. We know they're there mocking Jesus as well. You know, yeah, he saved others. Can he save himself, you know? But then they have the gall. Knowing what crucifixion is, knowing the whole thing, they have the gall to go and say, listen, you know what, it's preparation. We gotta, it's Passover. The lamb needs to be slain. Can you please go break their legs? The Romans would do this on occasion. If somebody was just taking too long or expedience or they had too many, too many people to execute, they would put you on the cross, you would endure the agony for a few hours and then they would say, okay, you're done because we got a line here. And they would take a, a large metal pole, like a mallet on the end of it, and they would go and smash your legs. The whole way you die of crucifixion is you basically die of suffocation and drowning, Because, and you're going to see that in a moment. But you, the whole point is you, you're placed on the cross with your knees bent so that you can extend your legs up and push your body up to get a breath. And then you slump down. Now, you need your legs to do that. And the Romans had perfected crucifixion. They knew that all they had to do is come and smash your legs. I mean, can you imagine just a a full mallet, a big, giant sledgehammer? You know, picture the kind that you drive posts in. They would just come and smash your legs. Again, I'll bring back my paramedic knowledge. I've seen legs broke. I've seen... I don't know if they, it doesn't specify if they smashed the, the tib-fib or the femurs, but either way, that was it. You were done. They made it thorough so that you could not, not use your legs any longer. As soon as that happened and your legs were smashed, you would slump down and stay there, and it's just a few moments before you would die. You'd die of pericarditis. Fluid would back up in your lungs, and you would um, drown in your own blood and water. Ultimately, that's that, and suffocate because of that. anybody experience or have c h f or you know any problems with congestive heart failure or have parents that do, and you know they if they eat too much salt or something, they get backed up with fluid in their lungs, and it's really dangerous. That's how you would die, but Jesus was already dead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out and he who has seen this has testified and his testimony is true. That's John telling you, I was there, I saw this. He will reference this in 1 John chapter five, by the way, those born of the blood and of the water, probably because of what he saw that day. They had a spear for his side. Roman Roman soldiers carried a spear, a javelin, like a spear, they they were they were soldiers they were warriors just like a warrior today would carry their M16 you know they carried a spear and a, and a sword and stuff so and that's what John will refer to here the scripture being fulfilled not one of his bones shall be broken again Isaiah 53 and another scripture they shall look upon him who they pierced that's Zechariah 12 they had to pierce Jesus in order for Zechariah 12 to be fulfilled but they, not one of his bones were broken. Now, the reason why that's interesting because Jesus is the Passover lamb, right? Oh, the, the Jews of the Passover were not allowed to eat the shank of the lamb. Uh, you couldn't break the bones of the lamb. God had instituted that in numbers because it was a foreshadowing of the Passover lamb that would be slain, Jesus, and God orchestrated. You guys, the Roman soldier in charge of Jesus, there was four soldiers, Right? So two of them took their mallets and went after the prisoners. The one who went to Jesus saw that he was dead. Uh, he could have gotten in a lot of trouble for not smashing the legs of Jesus. It was not his call necessarily to say, ah, he's dead. He made a call not to do that. That's, uh, to me, that's the Holy Spirit. Because in that moment, there probably wasn't a lot of time to think it out. Hey, you know, give me a pulse. You know, it just, the other guys obviously looked like they were still going, but... And it's interesting, blood and water. Blood and water. Why blood and water? Well, physically, because of the way his body was broken and 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 died with the back up in the heart. Because when Jesus died, ultimately all that up and down. And Jesus only Jesus lasted for three hours on the cross before he gave up his own spirit. Again, some crucifixion victims would go for a week. That's when they would usually smash the legs. They're like, okay, this is too long. Blood and water. Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born of the water and born of the spirit. The blood of Jesus Christ is what saves us. He shed his blood. The lamb of God who shed his blood. There is no remission, no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus had to bleed for us. Water in Scripture is a sign of of the word of God and the washing and cleansing. Let me ask you something. Who is Jesus? He is our high priest. When the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, when Caiaphas, think about this, the hypocrisy. Caiaphas is shedding the blood of the Passover lamb and pouring the blood, the lamb, the blood on the brazen altar. And then he's going, uh, before he's done that, and presumably after, he's washing himself in the brazen laver. Jesus, as as our great high priest who stands between us and God, Jesus stands between sinners and a holy God, Between the the veil of the Holy of Holies, the entrance to the temple, no man is allowed to go there except for the high priest once a year. And even that, he's only allowed to be in there for a brief moment before the Shekinah comes and he has to get out. Jesus stands between sinners and a holy God and blood and water flowed from his side because God had instituted in all those little rules and the things that he set up for worship at the temple, that blood and water, the brazen altar, and the brazen laver, blood and water stood before the priests could go in to make atonement in the Holy of Holies for the sins of the nation. And here is Jesus with blood and water flowing from his side, making atonement for you and I. What an amazing, amazing grace that we have received through Jesus. He fulfilled every scripture. I thought we were gonna get chapter 20. I guess not. I gotta stop lying to myself. That's a sin. Jesus fulfilled Every prophecy. I'm just there's so many things in here, you guys, that just blow my mind. And these symbols, and John used symbolism. We see the symbolism here. And I always wondered why blood and water, you know, from a medical perspective, of course, but it's it's more than that. Because John will refer to that later in his in his epistles. That it's through the blood and through the water that we are washed and cleansed and our sins are or forgiven, John knew that on that day and later in his life when he was in his 90s he had lived that out and understood that about our Lord it is through the death of Christ that we are atoned for our sin we have been set free, we have been uh, our sins have been covered so much so that what happened when this happened I'm going to take the last five minutes to finish up the whole crucifixion story a great earthquake happened. The earth shook. Creation didn't even know what to do when God died. Think about that. The earth shook. Every angel in heaven, when God died, probably put their hands on the sword on their hilt and thought, oh, Here we go. We don't know how much of the plan God told the angels. The earth shook. But as Jesus was on that cross as blood and water flowed from his side and he cried out, it is finished, everything's done, paid in full, it's all done. The high priest had washed in the labor, had poured the blood of the lamb uh, there. He would go back in and, and do some stuff with the incense and all that, go back into the holy place and Jesus did all of that for us. The veil of the temple. We can probably infer, and I hope this is the case, but I'm just gonna take a step out here. The veil of the temple probably tore before he could go in and do their thing. It says they were disturbed because the veil tore. There was no reason for the sacrifice that year to go into the Holy of Holies, to go into the temple, because it was already on the hill outside of the temple, outside of the city, because Jesus died during the time when that lamb was being sacrificed. Amazing grace, you guys, that we have been called now, now that that veil has been torn in two and we have been covered by the blood and washed in the water of the word of Christ. What did he say? My, you know, He's prayed for us to be sanctified, to be set apart, to be washed clean by the word of God, by his word. His word is truth. And we have believed it, so therefore we are of the truth. We are people of the truth. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit now. We're gonna be looking at Acts chapter two on Sunday as we get ready to pray. That's something that God put on my heart and I'll just share this with you. You know, we need a baptism of the Holy Spirit in this church. I think we may have many members of this church that may have not been really baptized in the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not, I'm not saying that nobody's unsaved, but we're, we're gonna cry out, cry out to God for a, an outpouring of his spirit on Sunday to fill his church with power to endure what lays ahead for us, to take this city for him. but That's all possible because Jesus poured out his blood and his water to sanctify and atone for our sin and call us in. In the next chapter, he's gonna show up in the upper room and he's gonna breathe upon the disciples. Receive ye the Holy Spirit. Again, when we read the gospel, and that's why I do this, I, I'm gonna do, this is gonna be my, my tradition from now on. I think I started it last year, but I'm just gonna keep this. We're gonna just read the gospel accounts when it comes to the crucifixion of Jesus because everything's there that we need. It's been painstakingly given to us so that we can believe Next time, we'll look at the resurrection. You guys, Jesus died for you. He paid the price so that you and I could have fellowship and enter in to the Holy of Holies and pray and worship. Please keep that in mind as you contemplate what Jesus did for you. Please keep that in mind as you anticipate coming to Sunday to worship to have communion, and to pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for Thursday nights. I thank you that we're just a family. We get to get together and just, just worship and go through your word. And But Lord, please let us never grow complacent about the cross and what you endured for us. Please wipe away those images that have gotten in our minds of the sanitized spiritual and holy thing that we can approach. Lord, help us remember that every one of us was destined to die horribly under your wrath. And yet you did it for us so that we could live gloriously under your grace. We thank you and we praise you for being you. For fulfilling your promises and all of the word of God and when you knew that all things had been fulfilled you bowed your head and gave up your spirit and you did that for us Hallelujah. we look forward to the next time when we look at the glorious resurrection but we ask for the resurrection power to fill this house on Sunday Hallelujah. in Jesus name we pray we hope you've been blessed by this message if you'd like to have more information or if you'd like to support the radio ministry of Calvary Chapel San Pedro with Pastor Jerry Cesario please visit calvarysp.org or find us on Facebook until next time remember to stay anchored in Jesus and reflecting His grace